for those of you that have been here for uh, uh, at least a few weeks, those of you who are visiting, I uh, want to welcome you here. We are in, we're actually wrapping up a, a series that we've been through, a seven-week series on spiritual maturity. Uh, to, uh, this morning is the, the last one in that. We'll be moving on, on into an, another season. We're coming up on the fall, which is always fun, at least for me, as far as preaching and teaching goes. Um, but before, before the fall, we are facing the month of August. That's about four weeks. And so I wanted to do a short book. wanted to, to do a short book from the Old Testament, a four-chapter book. Can anyone think of a four-chapter Old Testament book? Obadiah. No, just kidding. <laughs> Obadiah is great. Maybe we do it sometime. But I, I think someone said the book of Ruth over here. Um, something that will help us close the summer with a flavor of hope and redemption. So starting next, uh, next Sunday and for about four weeks, we're going to go through the Old Testament book of Ruth. Here are five reasons why I think this is going to be a great book and why uh, we have reason to be excited about the book of Ruth. One, first reason, it's an, it's an historical narrative. It's a story. We learn the best by stories. We've been in places in the Bible that we still, you know, we learn from, obviously, but they're, you know, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, point by point, snippets of truth, sermon form, or Paul, uh, uh, who speaks more in prose and formal letters and informal letters, two-thirds of the Bible is written in story form because we learn best through stories, lots of stories in there. This is one of them. Second, it's not just a story, but it's a powerful story of redemptive love. And I'm not just talking about love between Ruth and Boaz, right, although that's there. I'm speaking about love between God, the covenant God of Israel, and his people. It's this, uh, the well-being, what we're going to look at is the well-being of an obscure Jewish family taking the turn for the worst after they lose everything in a short period of time. But through a series of divine yet ordinary interventions, doors are opened that enable and allow Ruth, her family, even the whole world to know the God of Israel, that he's quick to redeem those who long for him. That's, those are some of the uh, themes that we're going to see. Third reason, this is from the perspective of a woman in a man's world. In the ancient Near East, women had virtually no rights, none whatsoever, It's rare to find women written about in that time period from such a noble perspective in literature. Now, if that's rare, it is absolutely unheard of to find any type of literature in in which a woman is not just the protagonist, the hero of the story, but the one that the book is actually named after. The God who breathes out scripture is doing this in such a way to reveal his glory and to reveal something about himself through the life of Ruth. I think this is going to be deeply insightful for us, deeply instructive and refreshing to see God through the eyes of this woman. Fourth, God works in ordinary human affairs. Right before Ruth is Judges, where you've got Samson with his superhuman strength. Right after Ruth is Samuel, where you've got the prophet Samuel. You've got King David. You've got Solomon in his supernatural wisdom. In Kings, you get Elisha and Elijah in some of the most sensational times and wars and acts of, of, uh, uh, of supernatural strength and power you've ever seen. Right there in the middle of everything is Ruth. No miracles, no wars. No sensational things, just ordinary life, things that normal people go through on a day-to-day basis. 
problems with family, problems with childbirth, uh, problems with social status, just putting food on the table, wrestling with faith in difficult times. What we're gonna see in this book is that God is present even when things don't look like it. He's actually present in your ordinary and mundane times in life. Even when you don't sense that he's there, he's actually there and he's working quite powerfully in the midst of what you're going through. And lastly, fifth, even though Jesus isn't named a single time in this book, he's all over it. I'm excited for us to see Jesus Christ shining through the pages of the book of Ruth. So starting next Sunday, we're gonna do a four-week series because there's four chapters going through that book. It's called Ruth, very ingenu- uh, uh, ingen- ingenuous, ingenuous, ingenuity, ingenuitous. A story of redemption. So that'll be next week <laughs> through the rest of August. So don't miss that. That'll start uh, this following week. Excited about it. But for now, let's finish up our series, Now What? Uh, And if you would, turn to Psalm 62. We're just gonna plant ourselves in a single solitary verse, verse eight. Give you a little catch up as you're turning there on where we've been. We've been talking about spiritual growth and maturity. And we started painting a picture of what it looks like The call of the Christian is to grow and mature in Christ. We looked for several weeks about the incentive for that, uh, why you would want to grow in Christ, the inner life that is cultivated in that through character and virtue, the fruit of the spirit and love. And then for the remaining few weeks, we looked at the means of growth. We looked at things like renewing the mind, uh, transforming habits in the body, Uh, doing all of that in uh, an environment of Christian community. And now we're going to look at what God thinks about feelings and emotions. Looking at the heart, this is transparent emotions. And I want to look specifically at Psalm 62 verse 8, but we're going to look at quite a few psalms this morning. So I'm just going to read verse 8, and we'll pray and we'll get started. Psalm of David, King David says this in verse eight. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, just want to thank you for that truth that we were singing a few minutes ago, that you are the lion and the lamb. You are the lion. You are the most powerful, most sovereign, most providential, in control, most authoritative. You hold the universe and the world in your hands, and yet you also are the lamb. You are gentle, and you are kind, and you are good. You condescend. You, you, you lowered yourself from your throne to reach us here in our despair and confusion, in our loneliness, in our emptiness, in our day-to-day lives, you, you stoop down to where we are. You are the lion and the lamb, the one who roars. As the psalmist declares, your voice thunders over the waters, and yet you, you also came silent before the shearers, as another prophet spoke of you, Christ. You, you died without complaint. You died for the sins of the world. You died to redeem us. And God, we want to come before you as entirely trustworthy, 
as a refuge and a fortress and a rock that we can run to and run into and we pray that as we speak from your word about the human heart that you would be present here to address all of those needs according to your powerful word. We pray that walls would be able to be torn down, that anything that is keeping us from understanding, from receiving, from the rich nature of who you are would be softened and disintegrated. We'd be able to see you. We'd be able, as Paul says, to know you even as we are fully known. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pour out your heart before him. Pour out your heart before him. Just let her rip. Everything that's in there, just let it all out. Not necessarily before yourself, not necessarily before other people. All of that will come. But come first before the Lord and just let it out. You've got grief, you've got anger, you've got frustration, you've got uh, unmet expectations, you've got disappointment, you've got joy, you've got something to shout about, you want to celebrate, whatever it is, pour out your heart before the Lord. Anytime we see the word heart, it's almost always in the Bible interchanged with mind. They, they, they function in different ways, but they overlap in different ways. We tend to think of the mind as having to do with our, our reasoning and our thought life and our understanding. It certainly does. But in the ancient understanding, the mind also included emotion. And the heart also included all of those things. And so when biblical writers spoke about the heart and the mind, you often see them overlapping. They're simply speaking about the inward part of the human being. So I'm going to, just for lack of confusion, or uh, excuse me, for for clarity, I'm going to use heart today just because that's what we're familiar with. But just know that heart doesn't just speak about your feelings or your emotions. It includes that but it refers to your whole inner life, everything that goes on in here, as we've been talking about uh, quite frequently. So when King David says to a bunch of people, pour out your heart before him, we would have to at least include a sense of our emotions. That God is, through David, telling people to express the way that they feel before God to express their emotion. This is very difficult for us sometimes. Maybe not all of us, but maybe a lot of us. Certainly it is for me. Because I have a tendency, and maybe you do too, to close off the way that we feel. There are a list of reasons why we do that, but we we can at least come to an agreement that there are often times where we don't want people to know what we feel like. We don't want to be too transparent. We don't want to be too vulnerable. It might be because we, we don't want, we understand that vulnerability includes some sense of risk. If I open up myself to somebody else, they might really burn me. They might gossip about me. They might talk about me. They might throw it back in my face. They might, you know, give me unsolicited advice. They might spiritualize my pain. They might belittle what I'm going through. The, the list is quite long and lengthy. And so we, we close off our emotions. We protect ourselves from other people. That's why I love how King David starts this psalm. He doesn't start with pour out your heart before other people, but rather trust 
oh, excuse me, pour out your heart before God, but rather he starts with trust God at all times. You see that in David there is this assumption. There's this assumption that he's not going to do those things to you. That you can be quite vulnerable. You can be quite open with your mistakes and your brokenness and your shortcomings. The thoughts that you think, even the the ones that are far from noble. That when you don't match up to what you see in scripture, when you look at Jesus and you fall terribly short and you wrestle with that, you don't have to put on a face before God. You can come before him and say, I, 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 I don't know what I'm doing. You can even be far more crude, can I say, than that. And honest and transparent, and in a sense, when you're wrestling with real struggles in your life and say, God, I don't, I don't understand. I don't even want to do this. I'm angry, God. I'm upset, Lord. I don't feel okay about these certain things. David starts with the sense that God is trustworthy even though people sometimes aren't. And out of that trust comes an ability to pour out before him, knowing that God isn't going to fail you. He's not going to steamroll you. He's not going to condemn you. We can express our emotions. Researchers have classified human emotions into eight main families. Perhaps you have felt some of these in the past week. Anger, obviously. Sadness. Fear. Enjoyment. Love. Surprise. Disgust. Shame. full range of human emotions. There might be a few nuanced differences in there, but they fall under, you know, this this umbrella of eight. Now, it's not necessarily, the scriptures don't tell us, in fact, they tell us differently, not everything that we feel is right. Our feelings aren't right by default just because we're feeling them, nor are they necessarily wrong. They're neither right nor wrong, necessarily, but they are true. When you feel something, it is a true reality inside of your heart, inside of what's going on in you. And the assumption, in in verse eight, at the end of verse eight, pour out your heart before him, is that even though they might not be right, they might not be bad necessarily, that'll take, take some discovery, they are true. And that's the assumption in King David's exhortation to say, you need to take those things before the Lord. You need to take what's going on inside you before the Lord. You need to open up. You might say, well, God knows what I'm going through. I don't need to tell him about it. But there's something visceral, something that crystallizes God's work in our life when we actually step out and do when we move our mouths, when we move our hands, when we posture ourselves. And emotions are really just a symptom of a deeper reality. It's not just that anger just spontaneously erupts in your life. It's not that you just wake up one day and you're just anxious for no reason. All of those things are there because of a deeper reality. Carol Travis, in her book, The Misunderstood Emotion, speaking of anger, says, anger tells you that there's a problem. 
We could say that about all of these. Disgust, surprise, love, enjoyment. It tells you that there's something else there. It's like a siren going off inside of you, telling you that you need to pay attention to something in your life. Are you angry? It's not just because you're an angry person, although perhaps after years of anger, you become an angry person. But initially, it's there to notify you of something. It's like a notification going off at the top of your head. Ding! Something's wrong. Part of the responsibility of the Christian, a Christian who is being remade and reformed into the image of Christ, assuming that Christ does not just care about your mind, which we talked about a couple months, a couple weeks ago, there it goes, doesn't just care about your body, which he does, and the habits and the decisions that we make with them, doesn't just care about our social circles, but he cares about the whole person that would have to include, as we see here, the human emotion, the heart, and everything that it entails. And if our emotions are there to notify us of something deeper going on, we'd have to agree with the psalmists and say, not only should we be expressing it before God, but we have to be understanding what's going on deep down inside. What is causing the way that I feel? If we were to take cliff notes from King David, we would say the way to begin this, the way to just start is to, first of all, just begin to feel. So many of us, are we deaden our senses. We deaden our emotions. Perhaps we think that it's a spiritual thing to do. Oh, I'm angry, and the Bible says something about anger. I forgot what it was, but I think anger is bad. So I'm not gonna be angry. Good luck with that. It's still there. It's already there. You're already angry. The psalmist declares, pour it out before the Lord. We must feel to begin anything and begin to express our feelings, first of all, in the presence of God. Precisely because he's a safe place to do it, because he's trustworthy, and because of those things, as uh, as King David declares, he's a refuge for us. I love that word refuge. Think of that imagery. It means he can handle what you've got to throw at him. It means he's not gonna be shaken because your, your day is crumbling means God's not gonna be shocked because you come at Adam and you're like, I'm angry. Oh, oh no, I created the universe, but I don't know how to deal with you, you angry person. He can handle you. He can deal with your stuff. And he wants to, and he wants to walk through you. He's not gonna freak out. He's trustworthy, he's safe, he's a refuge in times of trouble. And if you look, not just at Psalm 62, but Virtually every psalm. You don't see empty, methodical prose. You don't see categorized bullet points. You don't see essays. You see raw, real, authentic, sincere emotion. And a large amount of it isn't very pretty. I just want to go through a few of them with you. I'm just going to turn there. You can turn there with me if you want. Look at Psalm chapter 6. Psalmist pouring out grief, speaking of one human emotion before God. Psalm chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. This is David again. 
Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. There's his grief. But you, O Lord, how long? How long? Where are you? Verses six through seven, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. What a startling picture of King David, the one of whom was sung, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. I drench my couch with my own tears. Look at chapter 42 to see a, a vision of someone's depression and despair. Chapter 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again in verse 11, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again in chapter 43, verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you downcast? Why are you depressed? Chapter 51, we see feelings of guilt in none other than King David. Look at verse three through five. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in my sight. And so you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Over and over and over. It's as if King David is languishing in guilt, but not without hope. Look at chapter 55. Have you ever been stabbed in the back by a friend? Here's a chapter about betrayal. Verse three through five. Oh, excuse me, verse 12 through 15. It was not an enemy who taunted me. For if it was an enemy that was taunting me, I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. Listen to this. But no, it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And then listen to verse 15. This isn't what you come to expect from the word of God. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their heart. We kind of glaze over verses like that, don't we? Let them die, Lord. Or even if we read them, we certainly don't recite them. We kind of skip them over in our devotional time with the Lord in the mornings. Like, what do we do with that? This is, this is the psalmist being raw. Raw energy and raw emotion. Remember, it's not necessarily right, but it is true. And the first place that the psalmist comes to with what he's feeling is to God. Look at verse, uh, chapter 73 for weakness and discouragement. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verses 12 through 14. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in, in riches. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm the one walking with, with the Lord. I'm doing all the right things and the people that are doing evil, they're the ones that are succeeding and my life is falling apart. This isn't fair, God. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Chapter 94, anxiety. Verse 16 through 19. Actually, verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, help me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. We don't just see negative, raw emotion. We also see celebration, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, Psalm chapter 95. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Verse six, let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for we are his, uh, he is our God and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We see joy, ch- uh, chapter 98. Verse one, through, uh, 1 and 4. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. We see courage. Ch- uh, chapter 144, uh, verse 1 through 2. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress. We see Psalms for the brokenhearted. Chapter 147, verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcast. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I could keep going over and over. I think you get the point. The full range of human emotion right there in Scripture. The psalmists, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begin to speak as the Spirit led. What did they do? They were honest. Not only were they honest between them and the Lord, but the Psalms later became the prayer book of Israel the model by which we are supposed to pray. And the first place that we start is between us and God with raw human emotion. Not a fake facade, not putting on a a certain veneer, not trying to look a certain way, but being real with what we have there. You may say, well, that sounds fine. But I'm never angry, I've never experienced grief, I don't get sad, and I'm one of the most spiritual people I've ever met. I'm the only person I ever met because I only hang out with myself because I'm so spiritual, but notwithstanding, I am super spiritual. I don't struggle, I don't feel guilt, I don't feel any of those things, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm fine, keep thinking of a Ross right there, I'm fine. In November, we uh, did a book spotlight by uh, Pete Scazzaro, his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. For those of you who read it, uh, almost 100 people, he ran through a list of symptoms to face when you think you're fine. Do you experience, I'm going to go through all 10, do you experience any of these? 
Number one, do you ever use God to run from God? Here's what I mean. Hiding behind spiritual God talk. Being over-involved in spiritual things. Doing anything basically to look and present yourself to others like you're okay. That's one symptom, he would say, of, of an emotional sickness. Second one, what about this one? Do you ever ignore your emotions, whether they're anger or sadness or fear or whatever it is? We can do this by uh, one popular way of doing this, one that I, I've done frequently, is taking texts. You know, do not, anger in your, uh, do not sin in your anger or... Uh, uh, fear not, or do not be anxious, and using those to lie to myself, that I do not struggle with those things. Stuffing my feelings as if they weren't there and pretending to be happy. Third, do you ever try to, to use a Christian vernacular, die to the wrong things? So you may say, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says to die to yourself. So you should just die to yourself, die to everything. Well, listen, we're to deny the sinful parts of ourselves. That was Jesus' call on the disciple. As Christ is conforming you to his image, he is making you more like him. He's calling you to leave the old self behind. He's not calling you to die to the parts of yourself that God is renewing in his image. Irenaeus of Lyons in the third century was once quoted as saying, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. It's God's purpose in your life is to make you more like Jesus every day, to make you reflect his glory, and he's not gonna leave your heart. Fourth, do you deny what happened in the past and its impact on the present? For some of you, you might have been hurt, abused, betrayed, in a conflict that's still taking over your mind and your thoughts, maybe you're losing sleep over it, but whatever it is, something happened to you. Perhaps you're saying, you know what? Leave it in the past, ignore it. The Bible says uh, the old is gone, the new has come, so leave your stuff in the past. But that fails to recognize that what happens in the past has formed who you are today the things that you're doing right now and the things that are being done to you today are forming the person that you're gonna become tomorrow. Before we can leave the old behind, we must face it with courage, faith, and trust in the Lord. Fifth, do you ever divide your life into secular and sacred compartments? Here's what I mean. Do you have a double life? Do you ever come and sing songs at church about God's love, but then go home and lament about how, you know, that guy or that girl isn't looking at you or spending time with you? Your identity is in Christ, but dang, if that person would just look at me, I would, I would be fulfilled. Do you ever come to church with all smiles, but then go to work bullying people? Do you live a different way before people who are Christians than you do at home, in the job place, in private Six, do you ever find yourself doing for God instead of being with God? This is related to the first one in a way. Are you busy with mission and service and outreach and community and relationships, but find that there's nothing inside, no inner life? 
Perhaps you've been doing that so long you're burning out. Seven, do you ever find yourself spiritualizing away conflict? Something happens, you get hurt feelings, or something does, someone does something against you uh, uh, that causes a disagreement or a conflict, and your immediate tendency is to spiritualize it, gloss it over. Maybe even for good in, uh, with good intentions and spiritual reasons. Maybe you'd say, well, this is what Jesus would do. He would take the high road and not make a big deal about it. Do you ever do that so much you end up having to lie to yourself in order to keep that habit going? Perhaps you've been doing it so much that you end up very bitter towards those people who don't even know that they've hurt you. Eight, do you ever find yourself covering over your brokenness and your weakness and your failures in order to present yourself in a better light? Trying to appear at church, in community, at your home group, at the job, with your family, like you've got it all together when you really don't? Nine, do you ever try to live without limits? Maybe you're always doing, always giving, always putting the pedal to the metal, always pressing forward, always, and maybe it's all good stuff too, caring for other people, doing stuff for people, being very generous, no boundaries, no limits, no ability to say no. Lastly, do you ever find yourself judging other people's spiritual journey? Maybe you're so unhappy with yours because of list that the only thing that you're able to do is look at other people and and say, you need to get your act together. There was a local photographer who works at a Brooks Institute of Photography by the name of Ralph Clevenger took a photo. Probably everybody has seen. It's the famous iceberg photo. It's not actually one photo, it's four. But this has went on to sell almost a million dollars in royalties. It's actually on the cover of the book that we spotlighted, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's also on business blogs. It's on secular books. It's on just about every type of thing that's trying to express something. And to put it in his words, I wanted to take a picture of something that expressed that what you see on the surface is not all that's there. What you see is not what you get. Most of what you are is deep under the surface. A lot of stuff going on under the surface and we tend to hide. Thanks, Tyler. Or Jordan, I can't, uh, can't see up there. <laughs> we hide what's under the surface in basically two ways. I went through a list of different things that we do, but we can basically categorize them in two ways. Just think of it in this way. When we feel a certain way, we might either suppress our emotions or enthrone them. Two opposite but equal things. Here's what I mean by, by suppressing. There's a guy named George. He grew up deeply hurt by a lot of things that his dad said to him in the past, okay? His dad essentially wanted, they were a Christian family, wanted his son to be more involved in the youth program, more involved in church, more involved in all of these spiritual things, not because he wanted more for his son, but he was judging his son's spiritual journey. Why? He wanted to look spiritual like the other dads who seemed to have kids who had it all together. So he 
pushed this and projected it on his kid, crushed his kid under the weight of that pressure. He was, in a sense, using God to run from God. George didn't say anything and began to ignore his feelings of anger and sadness and pain and broken identity until one day when his dad began to make the same comments again and again and again, George exploded on the spot. Dad's immediate, uh, immediate response wasn't to listen, wasn't to protect, wasn't to care, but was to react with religious spiritual responses quoting scriptures and rebuking him and telling him how that's not the Christian way to act. Again, using God to run from God. Mom bursts in on the scene and mom, kind of the peacemaker of the house, tries to just bring a harmony to the, to, to, uh, to the kitchen by just saying, you know what, get over it and you just stop and it's all okay. But she's not really bringing a harmony, she's bringing more of an artificial harmony because all of that stuff is still gonna be there tomorrow. She's spiritualizing away the conflict. So in a matter of a few minutes, everybody moves on and it looks good on the outside. But dad, who's kind of a jerk, thinks he's justified in his actions. While George walks away discouraged and mom keeps running from difficult situations. Another example, Mary, abused as a child, something that happened in the past. She's told by a well-meaning Christian to get over it. Forgive and forget. She has trouble letting anybody get close to her. Wonder why. She puts on a happy face because she's told to be super spiritual, forgive and forget, be courageous, be brave, be loving. So she cover overs, covers over all of those deep-seated issues. She also gets involved in just about anything that she can at church. She's using God to run from God. Over time, she meets a dude named Tim. Tim is strappingly good looking. They get married, but never experience that deep intimacy that they were told about in their premarital counseling sessions. Because she continues to keep him at a distance like she has everybody else. She doesn't trust anybody. Oh yeah, they go to church smiling and singing and praying and talking. They even started a home group together and everyone comes into their house and a couple young couples look up to them as the model couple. And all of this pressures them to keep up the charade. They begin to cover over some of those deep-seated issues. But every day, make no mistake about it, they come home to a life of surface level small talk, lacking any meaningful passion, zero intimacy. After 10 years, they barely know each other. Whenever you're suppressing emotion, you're essentially taking what you're struggling with and you are pushing it down. You're not pouring it out, you're hiding it. The equal but opposite way of handling emotions, also wrong, is not to hide it or to suppress it, but to enthrone it. If the first way is to make as little of it, uh, a little noise about it as possible, the other equal but opposite error is to make as big a deal out of it as possible. In the first one, emotion is nothing, just ignore it because it's not there. In the second one, my emotions are everything. It's emotions without a filter. 
It's when the pendulum swings from suppressing to just a sheer lack of self-control. It's essentially letting your emotions rule over you when you are supposed to rule your emotions. One young guy grew up where some things in his life were incredibly unstable, past. So when he got older, he became a control freak. My life, to put it in his terms, was out of control as a young kid, so now I want everything under my control, including you. He also grew up mocked, ridiculed, and harassed during his younger years, and so as he grew up, not only was he a control freak, but he grew up very defensive and aggressive. He had a difficult time making friends because if anything got out of control or if he was confronted by anyone in any way, he would immediately flare up and fight. Often verbally saying something cutting, damaging and aggressive, sometimes physically. Because of those things, he can never keep a friend. Now, you might meet this guy because he grew up in church his entire life. He was a fairly nice and mild-mannered person. But that's because he was covering over a lot of stuff inside. He was also involved, like the first example, in a lot of church activity, doing good, for good things for God instead of being with God. But until something upset him, until life got outside of his control... He would turn on you in a second in order to protect himself. He was compartmentalizing. There's certain secular things in my life here, and there's sacred things here. I have a double life. He was ruled by anger and deep sense of pain. The last example is me, by the way. Sometimes feelings, even though they're true, can be incredibly destructive, can't they? Sometimes they attempt to derail us and direct us. You might feel anger, but if you let your anger rule you, it gets horribly out of control. Dallas Willard once said, emotions are great servants, but they are horrible masters. We see on opposite ends of the spectrum, suppressing or enthroning. When you start to do one of those things, when you look at examples in scripture and also in our experience, we see the inevitable result of a deep disconnect between what we say with our mouths and what we uh, live in our hearts. We might believe one thing because it's in our heads, but we sense and feel a different way, and we're fighting against those things. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They have a lot of personal knowledge. They're Pharisees, after all. They have a lot of knowledge about the scriptures, but those, those things in their head have not gone down deep into their hearts where it can radically transform them. Out of that disconnect come all of these things, hypocrisy, Burnout, distance from God and others. This is why David would say in Psalm 73, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that in our struggles that are true and real, We're not left alone to fight with them by ourselves. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is not unlike us, 
but has struggled through everything that we've gone through and yet is without sin. Now, that's not an example in such a sense to say, you know what, Jesus did all of that stuff and he didn't sin. He's better than you, even though he is. It's not like this, he's not holding up this model. You know, you need to be like that and you're not, you're not cutting it, bro. The author of Hebrews is presenting Jesus as the only one who can live a perfect human life and who has stepped down to intercede on your behalf who has been through everything that a human being can suffer through, in mind, body, and soul, who has felt deep grief, deep tears, deep anger, deep, deep, deep emotion, and yet without sin. And he comes to people by virtue of the cross and resurrection to inhabit their hearts and say, I wanna, I wanna reform you from the inside out. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. I pray that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that Christ wouldn't just convert you to his way of life, but that he would inhabit your being, that he would step inside your heart and he would teach you what it means to feel for the glory of God to feel with all of the vigor and expression that you were meant to have, but to feel in a way that glorifies your master. This is nothing less than Jesus ruling our emotions by union with him. The first thing that we see when you read the Psalms on how to do this is to first learn to just express how you feel to your God. Stop faking it. Stop trying to be a, a, something that you're not. Stop trying to put on a front before the Lord. Instead, pour out your heart before him. Love that psalm in Psalm 55, verse 12, when he's betrayed by his uh, friend, King David says, he, he begins to, it almost sounds like he's ex, uh, uh, lamenting and complaining about it. He's pouring it out before God. God, I, this happened to me. It's not because God is lacking knowledge and doesn't know that that's the case. It's because there's something deep that happens in the soul and heart of a person when we come before the Lord with our junk. There's something deeply uh, uh, liberating and healing about being vulnerable before, the God, uh, before God, being transparent before him. And yet even at the end of the psalm, you always, almost always see this pattern as a psalmist is laying bare his heart before God, there inevitably comes a place where he looks up. He's no longer looking inside. He starts there, but he eventually looks up at the presence and glory of God and appeals to God's power. He does this in Psalm 52 after he complains about his friend. He says in verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. coming before him and saying, whatever it is, I'm angry and I'm hurt. God, meet me in my pain and help me figure out why. I want you to meet me there. I don't know why I'm doing this, but show me. Psalm 139, verse 23, search my heart, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Search me, God. I bring it to you. I open up my heart, invade it, teach me, heal me, reveal to me. Second thing we gotta do is not just be vulnerable with God. 
See this also throughout the scriptures, being vulnerable with one another. We express, and, uh, we express what we're dealing with, what we're feeling with other people. Finding the appropriate people God has in our life to be honest with them. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15 and 25, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Therefore, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. To again quote Pete Scazzaro, I love this. I've quoted this like three times already and bears repeating. It says, when we do not process, this is what's at stake, When we do not process before God the very feelings that make us human, such as fear or sadness or anger, we leak. Our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not treated their emotions as a discipleship issue. Grieving is not possible without paying attention to our anger and sadness. Most people who fill churches are nice and respectable. Few will ever explode in anger, at least in public. The majority, like me, stuff these difficult feelings, trusting that God will honor our very noble efforts. But the result is that we leak. We leak through in soft ways such as passive-aggressive behavior, like showing up late or whatnot, sarcastic remarks, a nasty tone of voice, giving the silent treatment, and an endless list of ways that we hint to other people that things are not okay. Rather, Paul says, just speak the truth in love and let the healing take place. There is a bit of a double-edged sword to doing some of these things. When we uh, went through this last year, I remember people first discovering what it looked like to be emotionally healthy or at least to go on that journey. And it was so liberating for so many people it was so liberating that a lot of people went overboard with it and began to turn inward. God is healing me so that I can be all about me, right? All of a sudden, they were developing too many boundaries, overexpressing themselves, speaking their emotions without a filter, hurting other people, withdrawing from community because they were all about taking care of themselves. But this is a mistake. And it comes from thinking that the sole reason we're supposed to be healthy inside and out and mature is for our sakes. Jesus said, the second greatest commandment in the universe is to love your neighbor as yourself. Feelings aren't the end goal. Love is. Notice the trajectory in Psalm 62. David starts in solitude with God. In Psalm uh, Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. If you read the rest of the chapter, he goes from solitude with God, just bearing his feelings before God, to all of a sudden encouraging the rest of the community. Verse eight, trust in him at all times, O people. You can pour out your heart before him. That's the inevitable outcome of a person who is being made healthy in the presence of God inside and out. They are able then to minister to other people, not just themselves, to become a healing conduit in the lives of other people. I want to end with this. If you were to read some of the 
most outlandishly honest and transparent psalms about grief and depression and brokenness, almost all of them, laced with grief, also end with praise. Have you noticed this? There is always this note of hope and comfort in the sufficiency of God. It's David or the sons of Korah or Asaph saying, I ate my life right now, but I trust in the God of my life. It's a note of hope and comfort in the sufficiency of God and that his worthiness is there despite what our circumstances look like. It is coding our complaints with praise, saying, I don't know what is going on here, but at least I know what is going on there. God is always faithful. When we do this, when we praise, even when we complain with praise, We are teaching ourselves something about our grief and anger and anxiety. That emotion must be truly felt. However, it must never be worshipped. No matter how we feel, we understand that God's worth never changes. His love will never dry out and he'll never let us down. In fact, As we grow, we see his worth most vividly in our suffering. Love the story of Fanny Crosby, born in March 24th, 1820. As a baby, she had an eye infection, and an incompetent doctor tried to teach, uh, tried to treat her eye infection by putting hot poultices on her red and inflamed eyelids. The infection didn't clear up, but the result was that the scars formed on her eyes, and Fanny became blind for the rest of her life. A few months later, after that, her dad died. Later on, she began to write hymns and psalms of praise to God. Someone was once quoted as asking her, Fanny, do you wish you had your eyesight back? And Fanny replied, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. Because when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. That is not a picture of someone, I don't think, giving lip service and trying to sound impressive. That is, the, that is a quote from a person who has so deeply and profoundly met God in their pain and anguish and grief, which they first learned to experience, that the glory of God was able to shine the most brightly in their suffering. God is most vividly experienced, not when we try to avoid hardship in our lives, but when we accept his presence in the midst of them. Maybe asking yourself, where do I start? You can just start this morning by being honest with God. What are you going through? What's happening? He already knows it. There's something incredibly liberating about falling at the feet of Jesus Christ and saying, I want to cast my cares on you, Lord, because you care for me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. As we sing, some of you are already familiar with, there are carpets at the front for you to kneel before God. If that's a particular way that you like to meet with God, you can do that by yourself on your face in a physical posture of worship before God. 
There's elements to the right and to the left. You can take the bread and the cup if you are a believer. You can remind yourself of the price that he paid and the struggle that he went through on your behalf. Of course, there's prayer teams. There will be prayer teams to the left and to the right and also at the mezzanine floor. But as we worship and as we sing songs that enable us to pour forth our heart, let's do it with a sense of understanding that God cares and he wants to meet you in your pain. God, we pray that you would meet us as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.